0: And this morning we'll continue our study of Acts 3. We'll actually finish this chapter by looking together at Acts chapter 3 verses 12 through 26. And I'd like to begin our time by reading from God's word. So would you follow with me in your Bibles? I'm going to read from Acts chapter 3 beginning in verse 11. God's word says this. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people saying, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith and his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness." This is God's word. Well, It was about 2,000 years ago that a small band of Jewish men from what many would have considered backwater villages in the region of Galilee, unleashed a new teaching upon the ancient world. If there ever was a teaching unlikely to flourish, it was this word this group of men began to proclaim. In fact, we read from some of the most elite ancient authors that this teaching was received with some of the most denigrating language possible. We read quotations such such as this. This teaching was described as sick delusions, senseless, crazy, pernicious, even and filled with old womanly superstitions. And this new idea, of course, was Christianity. And yet, in just a few short years, we read in Acts chapter 17, some of the early Christians being dragged before the civil authorities of the Greek city of Thessalonica, being accused of sedition and described as those who had turned the world upside down. So I think we might ask, what was the energizing power for these early Christians to launch a ministry that upset the world? As we ask that question, I think initially, we are inclined to answer something along the lines of, well, that seems obvious, this early group of Christians, many of them were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. If I had seen Jesus raised from the dead, surely I would have a lot of power and energy and motivation for my ministry as well. And yet, as soon as we begin to think like that, I think the Apostle Peter, whom we just heard from, would like to correct us. Because he writes in his last letter, just before he died, what we know is 2 Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 16, he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't make up a fiction. Indeed, we were eyewitnesses of a historical reality that we saw, that's what we're telling you. And yet, that's not the ultimate source of our power in ministry because he goes on to say this, verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. More reliable than an eyewitness experience is the prophetic word of God in Scripture. That's the source of the power of Christian ministry. This correlates perfectly with with what Jesus taught his disciples upon his resurrection from the dead. In fact, Luke himself in his gospel in chapter 24 records Jesus after his resurrection coming to his apostles and telling them this. In Luke 24, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms, those books that we know as the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then this important line, listen, he says... Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he continued speaking to them, saying, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Peter and Jesus would teach us that the power for Christian ministry comes when Christians who understand their Bibles are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, when the kindling of biblical knowledge is ignited by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a force is unleashed. A force that turned the ancient world upside down. But then if that's the source of power and energy for Christian ministry, then I'd suggest to you that the same energy that empowered the first Christians to upset the world is still available to us today. Because it is the same Spirit who indwells every one of God's people. It is the same scriptures that we have that reveal to us the same Savior. If you are here and you've become a Christian, repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, your sins have been forgiven, you've been adopted, you've come into the family of God, you're a believer, you've received eternal life and in this life, God's given you a ministry, a mission to fulfill, to live a holy life and to proclaim the excellencies of your Savior who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And You need energy, you need power to fulfill your mission. What Peter and Jesus say is that God has given you his own very power when he gave you his scriptures and his spirit. And What I want to do this morning is look at a text in the book of Acts where Peter fleshes out this energizing power that is given to us when the Holy Spirit opens our minds to understand the scriptures. Because what the Spirit does through the scriptures is reveal to us the Savior. And In this particular passage, as Peter is preaching the scriptures, he unfolds for us three truths about Jesus that will motivate us in our Christian life and ministry. That's what we'll see this morning, three truths about Christ to motivate, to energize your Christian life and ministry. We'll see that Jesus fulfills God's prophecy, Jesus forgives sins, and Jesus founds a kingdom and we'll take each of those truths about Jesus in order this morning. The first truth I want you to see in this text is that Jesus fulfills prophecy. You'll notice that in verse 18, where Peter says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter claims that all the prophets spoke of Jesus and his ministry. But we might ask, Are there any specific prophets or specific words that Jesus fulfilled? And in fact, just in this text alone, Peter references four specific prophets whose words Jesus fulfills. I think it's worth examining those in order. The first prophet whose words Jesus fulfills, we find in verse 13, Jesus fulfills the word of the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 13. You see Peter saying, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. That particular phrase, God glorified his servant, is a quotation from one of Isaiah's most famous and important prophecies, what we know as Isaiah 53. This. Amazing prophecy about God's servant who would come and fulfill a ministry of suffering and dying on behalf of God's people to remove the penalty for their sins. And in fact, what Peter is quoting here is the very first line of that prophecy using really an ancient literary technique wherein an author or a speaker would allude to the first line of a well-known text in order to signal to his hearers, I want you to have this passage in the back of your minds as you hear the rest of what I'm going to say. And so in light of that, I think it would be helpful for us to turn there. So don't you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. If Peter wants to have this text in the back of our minds as we hear the rest of his sermon, then let's remind ourselves of some of the ministry this servant of God fulfills in Isaiah 53. And as you turn there, I'll just mention that it's not just this particular little phrase, God glorifying his servant, that signals this is what Peter wants in our mind. There's actually a whole slew of verbal allusions in this text. Peter in verse 13 says that the people deliver Jesus over. That's a particular verb from Isaiah 53, verse six. And then in the following verse, Peter refers to this person, Jesus, as the righteous one, which is the same title given to God's servant in Isaiah 53, verse 11. And we could go on, clearly, Peter wants this in our minds as we hear of Jesus. So as you turn to Isaiah 53, we'll actually begin in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, which is really the the beginning of this important passage of scripture. You'll notice in verse 13 we read this. Behold, my servant shall prosper, He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. He'll be glorified. And this, interestingly, is the only passage in the Old Testament where God is spoken of as glorifying a servant. The particular language here that's used to describe the ministry of God's servant, being lifted up, highly exalted, glorified in the course of the Old Testament and particularly in the book of Isaiah is language that is reserved exclusively for the God of Israel. Isaiah is emphatic. That God alone is to be glorified. God in Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. My glory I give to no idols. And yet here, the Lord is speaking of glorifying his servant in the same way he is glorified. What kind of servant is this? Well, as we continue to read, we learn about the ministry and the nature of the servant, and you just drop down with me to chapter 53 and verse five. We won't be able to read the whole passage, but we'll read a few verses. We begin in verse five. We see something of the, what's at the core of the servant's ministry. We read this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is speaking of a servant who will execute a ministry of dying as a substitutionary sacrifice under the penalty of God's people's sins to remove the judgment from them, taking away their sins. He's going to die on behalf of his people. In fact, verse 8 makes that explicit. If you drop down to verse 8, we read, By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. He dies for his own wrongdoings? No, stricken for the transgression of my people. He dies as a substitutionary sacrifice. In fact, dies in the course of a violent, bloody, gruesome, torturous death. The following verses in this text describe that this servant who dies as a sacrifice for God's people then lengthens his days sees his offspring and has a great inheritance after his death. Notice those verses for me with me. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, we read, "It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. After his death, he's prolonging his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion of the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He pours out his soul to death. He dies as a sacrifice and then lengthens his days and has a great inheritance and blesses many. What kind of servant is this? How can he die as a sacrifice, lengthen his days, see his offspring and have an inheritance? And the prophet Isaiah just lets the tension hang. But then if you turn back to Acts chapter three, Peter says that the life and ministry of Jesus fulfills that prophecy and resolves the tension. Jesus, as the one whom you gave over to be crucified, was crucified and died, not for his own sins because he had none, he was crucified for your sins so that even in your rejection and denial of Jesus, God was working through your sin to fulfill his plans. And now in verse 15, that servant will prolong his days, will have an inheritance, will bless many because verse 15 says quite simply, God will raised him from the dead. That's how the enigma is solved in Isaiah 53. Jesus is that prophet executing this unparalleled ministry of dying under the wrath of God to remove his people's sins and bring them to the Father. And that's what Peter, as he walks through this text, wants you to have clearly in your mind. Jesus is no random dot, on the radar of history. He is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes, and you were made to know him. Peter continues on. He says, not only does Jesus fulfill the prophetic word of Isaiah, but he then offers another specific prophet whose words Jesus fulfills, and that's Moses. And we find that in verse 22. So look down at your Bibles. In verse 22, we read this. Peter says that, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And you notice a little footnote down at your Bibles at the bottom page. It says this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 19. This is a quote from the Old Testament that Peter is making. It. I just wanna answer a question that might rise in your mind, maybe should rise in your mind. As I just told you that chapter, rather, verse 13, where Peter speaks of God glorifying his servant, is clearly from Isaiah 53, and you're meant to connect those dots, but there's no footnote there. There is a footnote in verses 22 and 23, but not in verse 13. Why? Well, it's because simply our English, the editors of our English Bible translations have made a decision that they will not put footnotes for every single allusion to the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament. Because if they did, your Bible would be just footnotes. Because the New Testament is replete with allusions to the old. But when a writer takes the time to make an extended quotation from the Old Testament, then our English Bible editors are compelled to put a footnote so that they make absolutely certain we definitely don't miss those. And that's what's happened here is Peter has, in the middle of his sermon, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy at length. There's something that we need to see here. So let's ask the question, if Peter is making a a lengthy quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 18, what's going on in Deuteronomy 18 that's so important for us? Deuteronomy 18 occurs in this portion of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is preparing the people to enter into the promised land. And So in chapter 18, he describes a number of institutions of offices that need to be established for the nation when they cross into this new land. And so we read of regulations for kings and Levites and priests and prophets. God's going to establish prophets to speak His words to His people. But in Deuteronomy 18.15, there's a specific promise of a specific prophet the Lord will raise up, a prophet like Moses. So we might ask, well, what is a prophet like Moses? What was Moses' prophetic ministry like? And in fact, Moses' ministry was unparalleled. Moses, the Old Testament tells us, knew God face to face. And He redeemed God's people, saving them out of Egypt and then he mediated a covenant on Sinai by which God's people could have relationship with God. So He knows God's face to face, he redeems God's people, he mediates a covenant, this is a special prophet. When will God raise up this prophet like Moses to execute this amazing ministry? Maybe it will be Moses' own personal successor, Joshua, who Moses personally anoints at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and is a genuine prophet. And yet the book of Deuteronomy closes with these words, Deuteronomy 34.10 says there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Yes, Joshua and his successors were genuine prophets, genuinely speaking the word of God to God's people and yet not prophets like Moses, not fulfilling this promise. And so there arose through the centuries an expectation in Israel that God was going to fulfill his word and raise up for his people a prophet like Moses. So when you come to the New Testament, you read things like as John the Baptist burst onto the scene, is executing his ministry, calling people to repentance, making a way for the Lord. The authorities in Jerusalem go to John the Baptist and in John one twenty one, they ask him, are you the prophet? The one God promised, the one like Moses. And of course John says, no I'm not but I'm making a way for the one who is. And in fact, in the New Testament, God himself affirms that Jesus is this, like Moses prophet, we read in Matthew in chapter 17 which records for us the transfiguration where Jesus takes a number of his closest disciples up a mountain and reveals to them his glory. There's this audible voice from God the Father that comes at the disciples here and God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and then God says, listen, to him, which is an exact quote from Deuteronomy 18.15, affirming that this is the one I promised. I'm raising up my prophet like Moses, who's going to fulfill a Moses-like ministry. Moses knew God face to face, but if there's anyone who knows God face to face, surely it's God's Son, who for eternity has been in the presence of the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18 says no one has ever seen God, the only begotten who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory, the firstborn of all creation. He is the, the image of the invisible God. He's the one who, as Jesus speaks to the Apostle Thomas in John chapter 14 says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's fulfilling this ministry. He is the face-to-face knowledge of God to make God known to his people. That's what Jesus does. But well, more than that, Moses accomplished salvation for God's people, leading them out of Israel, or rather out of Egypt into Israel. And of course, Jesus came to accomplish an even greater salvation, saving his people from their sins, and then initiating covenant and mediating what he calls the new covenant in his blood by which God's people can have an everlasting relationship with the Father. This is the prophet like Moses that God is raising up. His name is Jesus. And yet Peter continues in verse 23 by extending the quotation from Deuteronomy 18. He does something really interesting there that I think we should notice. If you just notice in your Bible at verse 23, Peter says, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet who is Jesus shall be destroyed from the people. That is that Jesus and your response to him is the criterion for belonging to God's people. He's the hinge. He's the entryway. There is no other way to know God than to come through the one who reveals him, namely Jesus Christ, God's son. But Peter does something that we, need, we, we ought not miss at the end of this quotation. See this comes from Deuteronomy 18, 19, and yet if we compare this quotation in Acts to what we find in Deuteronomy, there's a very interesting difference that I want you to notice. So we'll put this verse on the screen. And you notice there in Deuteronomy 18 we read, whoever shall not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself, will require it of him. I myself will require it of him, but that's not what we find in Acts chapter 3, verse 23. There we find, whoever doesn't listen shall be destroyed from the people. Peter's changed it. Why? We might suggest that, well, you know, it's the heat of the moment. He's just done a miracle. All these people are running at him. It's the spontaneous evangelistic opportunity, and so in the heat of the moment, with all the excitement, Peter just paraphrased and maybe changed the words a little bit. And yet that explanation just seems to be lacking for so many reasons and one of those is that the particular phrase that he changes to is not just a random, a random phrase, rather it's a quotation from another very important Old Testament text. This phrase in Acts chapter 3 verse 23, and he shall be destroyed from the people comes from Leviticus 23 verse 29 where God is describing the consequences for rejecting the Day of Atonement. In other words, Peter in this quotation is linking two of the most important Old Testament ministries and saying Jesus fulfills them both. He is not only the prophet like Moses that reveals God, saves his people, mediates a new covenant, he is also the Old Testament sacrifice that makes it possible. He's the fulfillment of the whole system. You'll recall the particular uh, day that that alludes to, the Day of Atonement, is the highest and holiest day in the Jewish calendar. On that day, the high priest would be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple in Israel. And he would do so by taking two goats. And the first goat he would slaughter and then take the blood and pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the altar before the presence of the Lord, symbolizing that sin has a consequence, death. And in order for you to enter into the presence of the Lord, to have relationship with God, That consequence has to be removed by a substitute. Then after leaving the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies, he'd come to the second goat and he'd place his hands in that goat and he would confess all the sins of all the people upon that goat and then a a designated man would take it outside of the city, outside of the city walls, wander out into the wilderness and release it. In Jewish tradition, he'd take it over 50 miles outside of the city and release it to wander in the wilderness and die, signifying that by a substitutionary sacrifice, the penalty for sin has been paid and now the sins of God's people can be removed and Peter is linking the Day of Atonement with the prophetic ministry of Moses saying that Jesus is the one that reveals God. He's the one who saves his people and initiates this new covenant by which we can have an everlasting relationship with God and he does it because he is himself the sacrifice that makes it possible. He has borne the wrath of God in his body, in his flesh, so he can take your sins away. That's what Jesus is doing when he's fulfilling Moses' prophecy. Jesus, in other words, he's fulfilling all of God's plans all of God's purposes, and you're made to know him. But Peter, even at that, still continues on. He's not only, according to Peter, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and Moses' prophecy. Peter goes on to say that he's also the, the fulfillment of the words of two more significant prophets. We could say a lot about these prophets, but we'll just mention them briefly. They are Samuel and Abraham. And you'll notice Samuel in verse 24. If you'll look at that verse with me, Peter says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You might wonder, of all of the significant prophets in the Old Testament, why mention Samuel at this point? Isaiah, well, we mentioned Isaiah. Jeremiah, Malachi, Hosea, we can go on and on. Why Samuel? I think there are probably two reasons for that. One, perhaps, is that Samuel is the next significant prophet after Moses, and yet there's probably a more important reason here in the context of this sermon, and that is that Samuel is most well known for anointing King David, and the book that bears his name, what we know as First and Second Samuel, is mainly about King David. And in the heart of that book, in Second Samuel chapter seven, God makes a promise to David, a covenant with David, promising that one of his descendants will sit on God's throne, establish and rule God's kingdom everlastingly. And then in the first words of the New Testament, you open your New Testament, the very first thing that you read in Matthew 1 verse 1 is this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This one who's bursting under the scene is coming to fulfill that promise. He's going to establish and rule God's kingdom forever. That's who Jesus is. But moreover, he's also the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Notice that in verse 25. There we read, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And of course we know of Abraham from the book of Genesis and the opening chapters of the book of Genesis describe the creation of the world and humankind in God's own image and likeness made to steward God's good created order and live in relationship with God and yet it's all lost upon mankind's rebellion against God men and women reject god rebel against him sin consequences for sin burst into the world death disease decay destruction but even upon the entry of the first sin god in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 promises that he'll undo it in genesis 3:15 he promises he'll send a human descendant who will crush the head of the serpent undoing all of the effects of the fall into sin and then god picks up the thread of that argument In Genesis chapter 12, when he chooses Abraham and comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you and through your descendant, through your family, I'm going to send that human descendant who will bless all the families of the earth, undoing the effects of your sin and restoring my created world. And then you come to the New Testament and you open up to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 again and you read, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the one who will undo the effects of our sin. He will bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth. He will establish God's kingdom and rule it everlastingly. He'll reveal God from this face-to-face knowledge that he's had for all of eternity. He'll save his people from their sins. He'll mediate a covenant so they'll know God everlastingly. And he'll do it all because he bore their sins in his body on the tree. This is Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's plans, all of God's purposes. You see, what Peter is doing in this text is that he's showing us that Jesus is not, in the way that so many cults do, the fulfillment of just one or two random cherry-picked verses from the Old Testament. You know how, unfortunately, many offshoots of Christianity, what we would refer to as, as religious cults, will take an Old Testament text, rip it out of context, dangle it in front of people in a shopping mall, and make it dance in all kinds of ways that it was never meant to dance. In contrast to that, you can take every thread in the Old Testament and find that they trace straight to Jesus Christ. Every promise, every covenant, every one of God's purposes, all of God's character, all of God's redemptive program flow into the person of Jesus Christ. That's who Peter's preaching. He's putting on display this magnificent, infinite, indescribable, marvelous person and saying, you were made to know him. That's Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies, and He is given to you. And that leads to the second truth that Peter wants us to see to motivate our Christian life and ministry. Not only is Jesus this incredible person who fulfills all of God's plans, but in a very important way, He fulfills all of God's purposes so that He can forgive your sins and bring you to God. That's the second truth, is not only does Jesus fulfill prophecy, he forgives sins. And in fact, as as Peter rather goes into this particular truth, he unfolds this truth in two stages. He shows to us the reality of our guilt and the reality of God's grace. So we'll look at Jesus forgiving sins under those two headings. First I want you to see what Peter says about guilt, that's in verse 13. We left off verse 13 after God was glorifying his servant, but Peter continues in verse 13 to say, You delivered him. You delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. And when you did, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life. You notice the repetition of the verbs directed at Peter's hearers. You denied, you rejected, you killed, you exchanged. He's loading them with the reality of their guilt before God. This is the way the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvation always begins with the reality of our guilt. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's prophetic plans. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's a Savior, and He's come to save us from our guilt and the judgment we deserve for our sin. And We we cannot access His salvation apart from coming to grip with the reality of our guilt. This is the way God's gospel has always come to us. Even in the Old Testament. I mentioned the prophet Isaiah earlier at the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic ministry in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they may be red as crimson, they shall become like wool. God can blot out your sins. He can remove them as far as the east is from the west, but not until and unless you come to grip with the reality of them. That your sins are as scarlet. Your sins are filthy before God. Your sins do merit the judgment of a holy God. Sin is not determined by culture or time or by preferences or personality. Sin is measured by the unchanging character of God. Acknowledging our guilt is coming to grips with the reality that the attitudes in my heart that God says are sin, are sin, no matter how natural they may seem to me. It's coming to grips with the reality that the things I've done that were wrong, no matter what the circumstances around mediating situations may have been, the reality of the things that I've done that are wrong are wrong in the sight of God. The only way to access the grace of God is to come to grips with the reality of our guilt, but when we do, The doors are flung open to receive the reality of God's grace. That's what Peter turns to in verse 19. I want you to look at your Bibles at verse 19 and see how we access God's grace. Peter says in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is the rhetorical center of Peter's sermon. He's been unfolding for us, this person, Jesus, and his incredible ministry. But in the heart of the sermon is he's calling for a response. He wants us to respond to Jesus. And the particular response he calls for is to repent and turn back. Repent. Whoo! That's a dirty word in 2018, isn't it? And when we come across words that cut across the grain of our culture, I think it's important to just remind ourselves what they actually mean. The word repent, fundamentally, just means to change one's mind. And what Peter is doing in this context is he's calling his hearers to change their mind about Jesus. You denied Him, you rejected Him, you ignored Him, Change your verdict, change your mind about Jesus. Recognize that He is who He says He is. He is the Messiah, He is the Lord, He is the Savior. The only way to God, you must turn to Him. Change your mind about Jesus and change your mind about yourself. You're not righteous before God in your own. You are guilty before God just as God says you are. You do need a Savior and He's offered one for you. Change your verdict about Him, come to Him. Repentance, we could say fundamentally, is to acknowledge I was wrong. I was wrong in the way I thought of myself. I was wrong in the way I thought about my life. I was wrong in the way I thought about God. I was wrong in the way I thought about his son. Fundamentally, I'm wrong. Repentance is to come to grips with the reality that in my own nature, I'm wrong and I need a savior. And if you've repented of your sins and come to Jesus Christ, that's happened to you. God has broken you and shown you the emptiness of your supposed self-righteousness and your need of His Son. You have acknowledged that I'm wrong. But maybe at this point we could just add a practical footnote that if, if we are indeed Christians, if we have repented of our sins, if we've been humbled to the point that we've recognized our spiritual bankruptcy and that in ourselves we are entirely wrong and need a Savior, if we've done the harder thing, of acknowledging our entire life is wrong, then ought we not be people who can do the easier thing of acknowledging our individual wrongs we commit against others and seeking reconciliation? We ought, a people, ought to be a people marked by our humility, acknowledging our wrongs, seeking restoration and reconciliation. But Peter doesn't just call for repentance, he also wants to clarify particularly what it looks like to come to God and he does that by adding in verse 19 a second verb. Just notice that with me. He says, repent therefore, change your mind, but he doesn't want to leave it there. Lest you be confused and think that repentance is merely an abstract intellectual change, just accepting a set of propositional truths and say I'm adopting a new set of religious or spiritual ideals, he wants to add a verb to make sure we understand what it means to come to God. And so in verse 19 he says repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And this word turn back is a loaded word. It's a simple verb and yet theologically it's loaded with meaning. As we walk through the book of Acts it's a common term that the apostles would use in their preaching and every time they use it in the book of Acts save this particular occurrence they add a clarifying prepositional phrase. Turn back to God. In other words, Christian conversion is not just, as I said a moment ago, an intellectual change of mind to accept a set of propositions. It's always personal. It's coming to the person of God. It's coming to God to to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, to embrace Him as a Savior, as your Father. Christian conversion's not just adopting a set of ideals, not just confessing a creed, though we must confess creeds, it's coming to the God of that creed, to the God of the Gospel, to know Him. This particular word also indicates something else about Christian conversion, and that is that it's a complete change. What I mean by that is that the way this word is used outside of apostolic preaching indicates something important about our spiritual life. For example, in Acts chapter 15, we find the word being used of travel. Acts chapter 15, Paul's at a stage of his life where he's already planted a number of churches in the modern region of Turkey. And in Acts 15, Luke records Paul turning to his companions and saying, let's turn back to those churches to refresh and encourage those believers. Now, Obviously, when he says, let's turn back to those churches, he is not saying, let's turn and see how it goes. Go down the road a little way. Maybe we'll encounter some difficulty. And, you know, if it gets hard or inconvenient or we just don't really like the trip, we'll just come back. When Paul says, let's turn back to those churches, he's saying, let's go all the way to those churches and let's refresh them and encourage them. Then that word is picked up and used in the context of Christian preaching to say, when you come to God, you must come all the way to God. That's Christian conversion. You know, there's a, a way that we can try to come to God without coming all the way, even professing believers. You know, human beings are by nature religious creatures. It's quite possible for us to identify a real need in our lives. Maybe uh, I need help in my marriage. I've got some rebellious kids and I really need I've got a problem in my life, a real problem, a real need. I really need help with these kids. I need some wisdom to guide me through this particular stage in life, or whatever it may be. It's possible to identify a real need, recognize that God has a real solution, and come to him. But keep the rest of your life for yourself. And my friend, if you do that, you have not come to God as God. You've come to a therapist. But God is so much more than a therapist. When God offers salvation, He's not just offering to set you down in the the patient's chair and just ask you about your problems, He's saying, I will take you as you are and I'll change you. I'll wipe all your sins away. I'll give you a new nature. I'll make you a new person. I'll give you a new name. I'll make you mine. But to come to God, you must come all the way. You must recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, your need of Him. You need your sins forgiven. You need a new life. You need a new heart. And you must come humbly bowing, not bargaining. But do you know that if you do that, if you come to God on His terms, not on my terms, then you throw open the doors to receive His grace. And that's what Peter says we will receive through the person of Jesus. Verse 19 says, when you repent and turn back, your sins will be blotted out. What a colorful, particular word he uses here. See, in the ancient world, uh, inks that were used were a bit different from the inks we use in the modern day. When you use an ink today, it's filled with enough acid that when you write on a piece of paper, that ink bites into the paper so that once you've written ink on paper, it's not going anywhere. But in the ancient world, inks weren't made quite the same, and so when you wrote with ink in a, a stalk or a quill or on a scroll... You could then take a wet rag and with enough elbow grease, you could wipe it off. You could blot it away as though that writing had never even been there. And Peter picks up that language and says that's what God does to us when he forgives our sins. He blots them out. He wipes them away. How marvelously different is that from the way that we tend to forgive one another. You know, when we are wronged by someone, we're, we're implored. Jesus says we must forgive our brother 70 times 7 from the heart. We're implored to forgive one another. And in the modern day, we commonly use this expression that when you forgive someone, you've gotta let it go. Because when you've been wronged, there's a tendency to hold a grudge against a person, allow bitterness to well up in your heart, and you have to forgive them, you have to let it go. And yet, even when you do that, there's still the tinge of pain, of bitterness, still wells up in you, you still feel the sting of that wrong committed against you. Kind of like a bell that you've been ringing and then when you choose to let it go, when you choose to forgive that person, the bell just continues to ring. You still feel the sting of the wrongdoing against you. And so you're tempted at times to grab hold of that bell and just keep pulling it. We do this whenever we throw that sin back in that person's face. or We bring it up to ourselves and we just dwell on it and allow bitterness to well up in our hearts. Or we bring it up to other people, we're pulling the bell again. So when we forgive people we have to not only let it go but then leave it alone so that over enough time that bell can still and be silent. But not God, that's not how God forgives. The prophet Micah says that when God forgives our sins he takes all our sins, casts them in the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. If we use the bell analogy, when God forgives your sins, he smashes that bell and tears it apart as though it had never even been there. That's the way God, through Christ, has forgiven your sins. Past, present, and future, he has wiped them away. Peter's saying that there is a Savior that we're made to know who's the fulfillment of all of God's plans and has come to forgive all of your sins. This is the Savior you're made to know. Finally, there's a third truth Peter wants us to linger on to energize our life and ministry. We could say a lot about this, but I just want to give you a couple thoughts to think about this morning. And this third truth is that Jesus founds a kingdom. Jesus founds a kingdom. You'll notice in Peter's preaching in verse 20, he says this, he says, to turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So he's speaking of a time that this Messiah will come and restore all things and bring in times of refreshing, What in the world is Peter talking about? A lot of what Peter's speaking of in these two verses hinges on this word, restoring all things. That's an important word in the New Testament. It simply means to restore things to an original state or condition. Peter is referencing, notice that he says at the end of verse 21, something that's been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. As you read through the Old Testament, every single prophet speaks... Not just of a Messiah who would suffer and die, but of a Messiah who would usher in God's kingdom. Of a Messiah who would restore the created world broken by human sin of a Messiah who would come and establish God's kingdom undoing all of the effects of our sin, undoing death, undoing destruction, undoing disease, undoing sin, blotting out sin and bringing a kingdom that will last forever, filled with righteousness, justice, peace, joy, and the presence of the Lord. That's what the Messiah is going to bring. He'll restore all things and establish God's everlasting kingdom, and we could read, Old Testament text about that kingdom, seemingly ad infinitum, but I, I'd just like to read a couple verses from one text I think particularly appropriate here. It comes from Isaiah chapter 35. Just listen to a couple words from Isaiah 35. Isaiah says, In that time the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Did you catch that third line? The lame will leap. Does that sound familiar to you? It ought to because in chapter 3 and verse 8 of our text, as Peter heals this lame man, Luke records that he leaps up. And Luke steals the language from Isaiah 35 and says that's what's happening to this man. In other words, the, the miracles that Jesus and his apostles were doing were giving snapshots Foretaste of what the messianic kingdom is going to be like when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. He will undo all of the death and destruction and decay that is a direct result of our sin against God. So Jesus is the Messiah, fulfilling God's prophecy. This restored kingdom is clearly a prophecy of Scripture, so we might ask the logical question, is Jesus going to do this or what? And in fact, upon his resurrection from the dead, that's exactly the question the apostles asked him. Luke records in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 that the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And do you remember Jesus' answer in Acts chapter 1? He says essentially, and this is of course the Ryan paraphrase edition, not yet. Not yet because first You must be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost ends of the earth. Yes, I'm the Messiah fulfilling God's prophecies, including the prophecy of this messianic kingdom. I'm going to establish a kingdom. I'm going to undo the effects of the curse of the fall. But there are spiritual requirements to enter that kingdom and so before I establish it, the word about me and my salvation must reach the ends of the earth so my people can hear of my death and resurrection and then repent and turn to God and have their sins blotted out so that when I come to judge the living and the dead, I won't have to judge them and I can bring them into that kingdom to be with me where I am forever. And in fact, that's the note that Peter ends the sermon on in verse 26. You'll notice in verse 26, Peter ends by saying, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And I just want you to note something about this particular text. This, God's going to get his salvation to the ends of the earth so that all of his people can repent and believe in Christ. So when Christ comes to establish the kingdom, his people can be with him. And notice how that's going to happen. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent us preaching to you so that you can hear the word and believe. That's not what the verse says, is it? Notice the verse says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you. How is that? Acts chapter 1 says Jesus ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And yet Peter is here saying that he's sending him to you. And then notice also, he says, he raised up his servant and sent him to you first, implying that there'll be a second, that not only is God sending his Messiah to the people of Israel, but to the utmost ends of the earth so they can be saved. But how's he doing that? Because Peter in verse 21 says that Christ right now is at the right hand of the Father in his session, and he's not going to return to establish his kingdom until all of his people has been saved. So how can he be at the right hand of the Father and at the same time be sent to all the ends of the earth? The answer is simple, by His Word. As the Word of Christ goes out, the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, opens the eyes of His people to behold their Savior in God's Word so they repent, believe in Him, and have their sins forgiven. In other words, where the word of Christ goes, Christ goes. This has always been the way that God works through His word. He doesn't just send His word out to give us some new religious ideals, but to reveal Himself to us. We find this even in the Old Testament, that God reveals Himself, not just ideas about Him, but reveals Himself through His word. For example in 1 Samuel 3:21 we read that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. It's always the way God has worked through his word is that to his people he reveals himself through his word. This is how he's sending his Christ to the ends of the earth. Is he sending his people preaching his word and through his word he opens the eyes of hearts to behold Christ himself and believe in him. And if you are a Christian, it means that that word has come to you. Your eyes have been opened. You've repented and you've believed. You've embraced Jesus Christ. You have seen that he is the prophecy fulfiller, the sin forgiver, the kingdom founder, the fullness of all of God's glory and you've embraced Him, and you love Him, and you treasure Him, and your sins have been blotted out, and you've been restored to God, you've been made a member of God's family, you have everlasting life, and in this life, you have a mission. To live a holy life filled filled with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the reality of what you believe. And to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the prophecy-fulfiller, sin-forgiver, kingdom-founder who called you out of your darkness into his marvelous light. By what power will you fulfill this life and ministry? Well, by the very power of God himself. Because when God gave you his scriptures and his spirit, he gave you his very own power. God didn't hold back on you. He's not in the business holding back on his children. He's brought you to himself, given you life and ministry, and you'll fulfill it by the very power of God. Let's go to our our God in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that you've called us out of darkness and given us your Savior. And Lord, we do want to fulfill the life and ministry that you've given to us, and so we ask for more energy, for more zeal, for more love, for more power. Lord, we want to know you, and we want to live lives that adorn the gospel you've given to us. We want to be clear and bold and humble and loving in our proclamation of Christ and in our ministry to one another. And so, Lord, please this week fill us with your spirit so that we might do that, so that you might be glorified in the things that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now, may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.